So we're going to go in our Bible study to Psalm number 60. As we keep working our way through the Psalms. Psalm number 60. Summary statement. Psalm 60 foresees Israel's tribulations and God's turning again to them to save and restore them through the defeat of their enemies. I'll go over that one more time. Psalm 60 foresees Israel's tribulations and God's turning again to them to save and restore them through the defeat of their enemies. Simple outline for this psalm in three parts, verses 1 to 5, crisis and confession, verses 6 to 8, divine oracle, verses 9 to 12, confidence in victory. And I'll go over that another time. So verses 1 to 5, crisis and confession. Verses 6 to 8, divine oracle. Verses 9 to 12, confidence in victory. All right, so we will go to our observations for Psalm 60. Psalm 60 was written by David, and the superscription there ascribes it to him, to the chief musician upon Shishanaduth, Mictum of David, to teach when he strove with Aram Nahraim and with Aram Zobah when Joab returned and smote Edom in the Valley of Salt, 12,000. So the superscription does ascribe it to David. It's directed to the chief musician or the choir master. It's set to the tune of Shishonadith, which um, means lily of the testimony. Uh, most likely, again, that would be a, a tune um, for the direction for singing. Uh, it is a miktam, one of the engravings like Psalms 57 to 59 before it. Uh, there's also one selah in the text in verse number four. And other than that, there's no other musical directions. Now, the occasion for this psalm is given in the heading. In fact, it's one of the longest headings um, in the psalms. And it's referring to the account that is given in 2 Samuel chapter number 8 and also in 1 Chronicles chapter number 18. So David was ruling over Israel after the death of Saul, so that uh, also makes this somewhat unique. Most of the occasions, the historical occasions, are during the time that he was fleeing from Saul not after that he was reigning, though there are some. So this is one of those ones after he was actually reigning over Israel. 
Um, David was in the north with the armies fighting uh, against the um, Arameans, the, the Arams that are mentioned in the, in the heading. When Edom attacked southern Judah with devastating effects. Now, ultimately, David and Joab um, would go and would overcome the Edomites and they would secure victory. So that is the occasion that is referred to in the heading of this psalm. Psalm 60 is what we would call a national or a communal lament. Um, It does differ a little bit. It varies a little bit from the standard conventions, but it still fits overall with that of the lament. You have a direct address to God and a crisis complaint in verses 1 to 3. You have a statement of confidence and a petition for help in verses 4 and 5. You have an answer from God in verses 6 to 8, which is somewhat unusual. You have a petition for deliverance in verses 9 to 11. And you have an expression of confidence in verse number 12. Now, the communal aspect of the lament is seen especially in the use of the plural pronouns, we and us, that are used throughout this psalm. In fact, you only have um, two instances, and it's both in in verse number 9, where a singular pronoun is used. So David is writing this psalm, but he's obviously writing this as one of the congregation, one of the, the community, and he only uses those singular pronouns in verse number nine, which has um, some significance to it. Uh, I would also term this psalm as prophetic, predictive. Um, as we've been going through the psalms, you have prophetic in terms of, of judgment pronouncement, and this would be prophetic, predictive. Um, and that is seen immediately in the fact that much of this psalm doesn't really fit fully with the occasion in the heading. In other words, with the immediate circumstances of what was going on at that time and even the results when David and Joab um, drove out, drove back the, the Edomites, um, it doesn't fit entirely. Uh, this, is a, this psalm is a bit of a larger scale than that. And so we'll see more evidence for this being a, a, predict, a predictive um, prophetic psalm as we move on. Psalm 60 also shares um, connections, obviously, with the preceding David psalm. So we are in this David psalm group in this book two collection of the psalms. And Psalms 52 to 59, especially before it, um, it has special connections with Psalm 52 and 58. Uh, the connection with Psalm 52 would be, uh, obviously, the mention of Doeg the Edomite. And we have the, the Edomites as enemies here and um, also in, in Psalm 58, um, which um, look forward to that. Day of the Lord judgment, at which is echoed here in in Psalm number sixty. Um, you also have an abandonment and an exile theme, uh, and that begins in the very start. Um, you know, God has cast us off and scattered us, um, and that's also interesting that that He um, uses those terms and that he, and that He you know um, uses that theme because David and Israel were in the land when He wrote this. And yet he's speaking of being um, scattered and abandoned in terms of exile, which is very familiar in the Korahite Psalms. We've seen that theme also in the David Psalms. Um, Obviously, again, that ties into the prophetic nature of the psalm. Um, This psalm is also concerned with persecution from enemies, um, the nations in this case. 
uh, Edom and Moab and, and Philistia especially. Deliverance coming through God's judgment on his enemies. And so all these are connections with these David Psalms in particular. Um, the Psalm also shares connections with Psalm number two, um, which is um, not surprising given the, um, the nations and the conflict and, and such. Um, but there's also a number of connections actually with the law, um, some of the writings of Moses, and with some of the later prophets as well, probably and far too many actually for us to get to. Um, poetic features of Psalm number 60. Noticeably, this psalm contains a divine oracle, meaning that this is God speaking. It's, it's like a, a direct quote of God. Um, so there, it's not extremely common for there to be direct speech of God in a, in a psalm, um, but this is one of those cases. Um, the psalm also uses a, a geography motif. Um, you have the naming of nations and of territories in the psalm. And so you see that the psalm reflects there's a concern here with people and with land. Um, the locations that are mentioned, they, they give compass directions, essentially. Um, they, they cover all points of the compass. So the places that are, are mentioned are north and south and east and west. Of course, Israel um, being central uh, or geocentric um, concern in the psalm. So they cover all points, and by that there's an extension then that this does concern all of the earth, and we actually have reference to the earth um, in the psalm as well. The psalm makes use of a lot of military-type language and imagery. Um, so there's a lot of, of battle and victory and, and, and marching, um, you know, marching into the strongholds of the enemy and that sort of thing. Also uses some cultural idioms um, like the wash pot and, uh, and the throwing of a shoe. Uh, that, all those kind of cultural idioms um, appear in the psalm as well. Okay, so we want to work our way through here. We have 12 verses in this psalm, so I'll go ahead and read this. O God, thou hast cast us off. Thou hast scattered us. Thou hast been displeased. O turn thyself to us again. Thou hast made the earth to tremble. Thou hast broken it. Heal the breaches thereof, for it shaketh. Thou hast showed thy people hard things. Thou hast made us to drink the wine of astonishment. Thou hast given a banner to them that fear thee, that it may be displayed because of the truth. Selah. That thy beloved may be delivered, save with thy right hand, and hear me. God hath spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and mete out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also in the strength is the strength of mine head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my wash pot. Over Edom will I cast out my shoe. Philistia, triumph thou because of me. Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? Will not thou, O God, which has cast us off, and thou, O God, which does not go out with our armies? Give us help from our trouble, for vain is the help of man. Through God we shall do valiantly, for he it is that shall tread down our enemies." So the psalm opens with this direct address in verses 1 to 3, and also it's a direct address complaint. Um, the word for cast off means to forsake or to abandon, and it is used three times in the Korahite psalm, Psalm 43 in verse number 2, Psalm 44 in verse number 9, and in verse 23 of that same psalm. We know that that was a, a theme um, in those particular psalms as well. 
And not only does he use the word cast off, but he also says, thou hast scattered us. Now, the, the word here is not quite as common. We've seen a word um, that would more specifically refer to exile, but this, this word um, has the idea of being broken into tiny little pieces, and so scattered, splintered that way. And it is because of God's displeasure, and that is mentioned here in verse number one, that, that this um, complaint is because of God's displeasure, which the rebel nations are also warned about his displeasure in Psalm 2 and verse number 12, that they are to um, kiss the son unless he becomes angry with them. So what this amounts to is a confession here in this psalm. In other words, Israel has garnered God's displeasure through their sin, and so their tribulations are viewed as punishment from God. And then we have a prayer that asks for restoration here at the end of verse 1. Turn to us again. Uh, And this restoration is something that's referred to um, in Psalm 14 and verse number 7, more recently in Psalm 53 and verse number 6. And in both of those places, it is the restoration that comes um, out of Zion. It's the salvation or the Savior that comes out of Zion. The two uh, in verse um, 2, the tribulations are described in terms of geographic cataclysm. All right, so we have earthquake. Um, we have tearing open of the earth. These are um, obvious images that have been used before, Psalm 18 and verse number 7, um, references to the earth seen in Psalm 2 uh, and in Psalm 8, as well as more recently in Psalm 57 and in Psalm 59. Now, the word for heal that is used here is a word that, that means to mend or to make healthy. And every other time that this word is used in the Psalms, it refers to the healing of people. This is the only place where it refers to the healing of land. Well, what that shows us is that the problem is of a spiritual nature. This, this is not simply a natural disaster, though we may be talking about an earthquake or uh, the rupturing of the earth, whatever the case may be. But this is a spiritual problem. So also, this concerns the land of promise. And we'll see the land of promise described uh, a little later on in those geographic um, details that are given to us. So the land of promise, and this reveals this need for a healing of the breach of the land, reveals the desolation of the land, which uh, desolation is a different term that is used, but it is one that is associated with the judgment exile on Israel. And so we've seen that in Psalm 44 and verse 19, Psalm 46 and verse 8. We see that as well in the prophets like Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 13, verses 21 to 22, later in the book of Jeremiah as well. So in in the third verse, he makes reference to the hard things that the people have been made to see. And the hard things refers to severe. So it's the, he's referring to the severe punishment that they have faced. And he, he gives, gives this imagery um, of this judgment as being made to drink the wine of astonishment. Now, the word for wine is the most common word um, for wine in the Hebrew. It is yain. Uh, it means to evervest or, or to bubble. It, it, in other words, it's a word that refers to uh, the process of fermentation. Wine is sometimes an image of judgment, like here, like in Psalm 75 and verse number 8. 
in Isaiah chapter 51, verses 17 and 22 is another one that, that promises this um, wine of God's judgment. So the reference here, the wine of astonishment, and that word can mean um, staggering or, or reeling to and fro. The, so the reference here, the drinking of the wine of astonishment, is to the effects, the effects of over-consuming really strong wine. So it's to the point that one becomes senseless, staggering to and fro like a a drunken man, which is sometimes um, referred to in the prophets as well. So the the point is they've they've been made to reel or to stagger in judgment from God's hand. Then we get to verses 4 and 5, and we have a request, but it's a confident request. The lifting up of a banner is a rallying point. Now, there's no other reference to this banner in the Psalms, but it it appears most often in Isaiah, and probably next after that would be in Jeremiah. But clearly, this banner lifted up in Isaiah is certainly the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10 and 12, especially. There's other references in Isaiah. The word for truth, um, I believe that's the Hebrew emet, uh, it's a word that indicates truthfulness or reliability. So this banner will be a refuge for those who fear him. In other words, those in covenant relationship with Yahweh, and it will also be a fulfillment of promise. That's where the, the truthfulness comes in, the trustworthiness, the reliableness of Yahweh's promises. In verse 5, He mentions the beloved of Yahweh are the ones that are going to be delivered by this raised banner. The beloved of Yahweh was first mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse number 12 in reference to Israel. And it is a covenant reference um, to the people that God has set his love on, the beloved of Yahweh. Deliverance is required, which means that Israel is in trouble. They are in um, tribulation, and there's a promised deliverance from this trouble, um, like back in Psalm 50 and verse number 15 in that Asaph Psalm. He refers to the right hand, to God's right hand. Now, the right hand refers to strength and the power of Yahweh. Not only that, but also that it's his exclusive act. So it's, it's done in his strength and his strength alone. He doesn't need any any help. He doesn't have to have assistance in order to deliver and to save. We have references to the right hand uh, in in this exclusive act of of powerful deliverance. Psalm 17 and verse 7, Psalm 18 and verse 35, Psalm 20 and verse 6, Psalm 21, verse 8. More recently, the Korahite Psalm, Psalm 44 and verse 3, Psalm 45 and verse 4. And it's also used there in Psalm 44, uh, verse 3, in reference to the possession of the land of promise. That it was, in other words, that, that land was possessed by the power of God's right hand, not by the power of, of Israel. Asking for the prayer to be heard indicates a relationship and the expectation of an answer. In other words, there's a, there's a confidence to this, to this prayer. There's an expectation. There's a reason to hope um, for this answer. Uh, we've seen... Uh, the term used that way before, Psalm 55, verse 2, more recently, but beginning all the way back, Psalm 3, verse 4, and Psalm 4, verse 1, and many other psalms coming forward. Verses 6 to 8 is where God speaks, where we are given a, a relation of God's direct speech. But you notice the reference is God hath spoken. So it is in the past. So it, it's, it's meaning 
that these promises that are being trusted in are something that, that God has already promised. So it's, it's not that God is speaking in response to this situation, but that these are the words of God that are being trusted to in this situation. God has already spoken this word. Now, the word for holiness, it can be an attribute of, of God or of, of something else. Um, it can also be um, a place, a holy place, a sanctuary, and it is used um, in many, many psalms um, in, in those ways. The words divide and to meet out are words that are describing the possession and the distribution of the land. So imagine um, God, as it were, sort of marking off the land and determining boundaries and, and appointing um, possessions to um, different peoples in these different places. And then we start getting these name places in Israel. So we get Shechem and Sukkoth. In the next verse, we get Gilead and uh, Manasseh. And so Shechem and Sukkoth and Gilead and Manasseh would all refer to that central region of Israel. And so would would um, correspond to the east-west um, points of the compass. And God is obviously here exerting divine ownership, saying it's mine, it's, it's, it's mine. And in verse 7, we have reference to Ephraim and to Judah. Ephraim would be the north and Judah would be the south. So all of Israel is covered in terms of tribes and territories in all of these references. Ephraim and Judah particularly refers to the northern and southern kingdom. Um, and that obviously is prophetically here because when David wrote this, they weren't divided into a northern and southern kingdom. Uh, but we find this is the language that's echoed much later in the prophets, um, Ephraim and, and Judah, northern and southern kingdom, um, Israel and Judah sometimes, um, sometimes uh, Jacob and Judah. So the strength of head that is referred to as Ephraim is, is uh, it's like a helmet, or like a, a military helmet. Um, it's, it's obviously a, a military-type term, um, armies. Um, lawgiver uh, refers to ruling. Um, that's referring to, um, to kingship, to governing, and obviously that belongs to Judah. In verse 8, we have the dominion of God extending then to the enemy nations. Then he begins to mention Moab and Edom and, and Philistia. Moab was south of Israel. And the word for washpot, this, this refers to the, the footbath and, and, and essentially like uh, when the servants would um, wash the feet um, of, the, the, of the household or of the guests or whatever that it may be. Um, Moab is my washpot essentially is a, a idiomatic expression showing that they have been fully subjugated. They, they've been fully owned. They are their menial servants um, in the household, so to speak. Edom was to the west, south and, and I mean, sorry, to the east, south and east. Um, the throwing of the shoe, uh, again, is a, a, an idiomatic expression. And there's a little bit of uncertainty about the exact meaning of the image, the throwing of the shoe. But regardless of that, it, it indicates subjection and ownership um, once again, much like the reference to Edom. Philistia was to the west, um, the um, land of the Philistines. And obviously, uh, Moab and Edom and the Philistines were the 
continual enemies of Israel and sources of problems for them. And the reference to the Philistia, the to understand the wording is a little odd, but it, it seems like it's a direction to praise the Lord's victory. In other words, that that they're they're going to be dominated, they're going to be conquered, and um, they will be also subjugated. Verses 9 to 11 then gives the petitions to God for help. And verse 9 has the only use of those singular pronouns, as we mentioned. And so at this point, it's, 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 it's like David takes up this prayer as the anointed king that is going to lead the armies of Israel into battle. The strong city of Edom refers to the impregnable fortification of Edom uh, mentioned in Jeremiah 49.16. But more generally, it expresses a conquest of the very stronghold of the enemy. In other words, into the very seat of enemy power. Verse 10, direct address to God, and it echoes the opening of verse number one, the casting off that is repeated from there. So it's so he's recognizing here being abandoned by God, and so their armies have suffered defeat. And this um, we've seen this previously in Psalm 44 and verse number nine. Uh, and obviously um, that was, if you go back to the, the books of Moses and even into Joshua, um, this is what they were continuously warned about that if they did not keep covenant with Yahweh, if they did not um, walk in his ways, if they forsook him, he would forsake them. He would not go out with their armies, and they would be defeated in battle. Um, But we also see here that this appeal is made, the very God that abandoned and scattered is the very God that will deliver. That's where the confidence is. Verse 11 recognizes God as the only source of help or the only source of salvation. Um, This is a refusal to trust in man. He's not going to put his trust in man or in mankind. It is the Hebrew word Adam. Um, Man is ultimately powerless. Then the psalm ends in verse number 12 with an expression of supreme confidence in God. So, Doing valiantly is the same word that's translated power in Psalm 59 and verse number 11. And that's where God scatters all the enemies um, through his through His power. And we have an echoing here of the confidence, the treading down of our enemies from Psalm 44 and verse number 5. And this would also coincide with the imagery of the bathing, uh, the bathing of the feet in the blood of the enemies in Psalm 58 and verse number 10. So again, it indicates a victory that is given by God, that, that a victory that comes through his Messiah. All right, so let's go to interpretation. Psalm 60 teaches that the earth is the Lord's, that he governs it as it pleases him. So we have all these geographic territories and peoples that are mentioned. And there's peoples that are possessing these territories, but they and the strength of their armies does not determine ownership or occupation. God asserts his ownership and his divine right to distribute it according to his own will, which would include the dispossessing of unbelieving 
rebellious nations, which is something that has been um, promised going all the way back into the book of Genesis. Furthermore, God has a will or a plan for the earth and the inhabitants that won't be determined by armies, but it will be determined by his right hand. Psalm 60 also teaches that victory over evil is not about numbers or resources. It, this psalm shows very clearly that it is God who will bring this victory. It is God who will save. His right hand both scatters and restores. His hand rips and it heals. He will do it, and the rebel nations cannot stop him. This also highlights utter dependence on God and the necessity of taking refuge in him. The Messianic hope of Psalm 60 is seen through David's confidence in past promises for future fulfillment. That's what we get in this psalm. So we have to keep a couple things in mind. Peter, in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 30, called David a prophet. A prophet who knew through God's covenant that he would raise up Christ, Messiah, after him to sit on his everlasting throne. David knew that. He wrote with that knowledge, is what Peter was saying. Now, that was promised to David in God's covenant with him. 2 Samuel chapter number 7 and verses 8 to 17, where David was promised victory over enemies, establishment of his throne, a son to sit on that throne, peace with all of Israel in the land that had been promised. But that's not all that David knew. David also knew the promises to Abraham of a nation that was going to come from Abraham and of a land that was promised for a perpetual possession. Genesis chapters 12 and and on from there through at least 18. He also knew from the books of Moses, from the law, he also knew that the lawgiver, and it's the same word that is used in this psalm, bearing the scepter, which is another word that is used not in this particular psalm, but is associated with it in other psalms as well as in prophecies, the lawgiver bearing the scepter would come from Judah. Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 to 12. And he would take dominion. He knew also that this scepter out of Judah would conquer the nations and the land, specifically mentions of Edom and Moab in the prophecy of Balaam in Numbers chapter 24, verses 17 to 19. So these are, th- these are promises that David knew as he is writing this psalm. But that's not all that David knew. David also knew that Israel would not remain in the land that they were in in his lifetime. He knew that was not always going to be the case because it's prophesied in Leviticus chapter 26, in Deuteronomy chapter 28 to 32, that Israel would rebel against God, 
they would be exiled from the land and scattered and the land make desolate. And that in the latter days, God would turn again to them to gather them and to restore them to the land. And again, those things are all there before Israel ever even took possession of the land to start with. Now, so those are, those are things prior to the time of David that are written, that, that speak to and, and inform this writing of David. But we also find when we look from this psalm into the future and forward from, from there, that, the, that he's also echoed by the later prophets. So the exile and the tribulations of Israel are described in the day of the Lord that we talked about in Psalm number 58. And David is using some of that imagery here for the, tri- for the tribulations of Israel in this time. So he talks about the earthquaking, about the reeling to and, to and fro, about the ruptures in the earth. These are these geographic cataclysmic events that are spoken of in this day of the Lord, this time of, of Jacob's trouble that culminates in the day of the Lord, that last half um, of that seven-year tribulation period. Joel also prophesied the restoration of Judah when God judges the nations and pours out his wrath on the earth in Joel chapter 3. Beyond that, we also have references to Ephraim and Manasseh, which are not common. They do, they do occur, but they're not real common. References to Ephraim and Manasseh are obviously references to Joseph. And sometimes Joseph is mentioned or Joseph is mentioned in connection with them. And any time that we have these references, any, any sort of prophetic reference, it is in connection with the restoration of Israel to the land. So in Psalm 77, verse number 15, Psalm 78, verses 9 and 67, Psalm 80, verse 1 and verse 3, Psalm 81 and verse 5, Psalm 105 and verse 17, Psalm 108 and verse 8. But even beyond that to the prophets, Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 19 to 23. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 11, and in Zechariah 10, verses 6 to 12, all, all make these references, these um, Manasseh and, and Ephraim and, and Joseph references, and they're connected to the restoration, the gathering, the restoring, and the uniting of Israel. So David foresaw the time of Jacob's trouble and the day of the Lord in this occasion prefigured. He knew that Israel's hopes were in the coming Messiah. So in other words, David's concerns weren't only the immediate circumstances that he was in, but he he saw in these immediate circumstances some of the sorrows that were to come, but also the deliverance that was to come when the Savior comes out of Zion. All right, applications. I have two of these. Ways that Psalm 60 speaks to us today. Number one, understanding Psalm 60 helps us understand that being under chastening is not hopeless. How often is our suffering 
a chastisement. And this is something that we do need to deal with in times of suffering. Have we brought God's displeasure on us through our disobedience? Have we been slow to believe and to do what God has has told us? Have we been disobedient, defying what God has told us not to do? So it is something that uh, I think the way that it's put in Hebrews 12 is being exercised under his chastening. That it's, that it, he says it's not, it's not pleasurable, it's not fun, it's not enjoyable, but it works the peaceable fruit of righteousness in us to those that are exercised, those that stay under that disciplining hand of God. So even, even if we are suffering under chastisement, we can confess and forsake our sins. We see this pattern here, and we can trust in God's covenant promises. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love us anymore. Much like when a loving father or mother disciplines their child, and that can be painful and that can be difficult, but it doesn't mean that the parent parent doesn't love the child. In fact, it means the opposite of that. And that's what we're told in the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New, that that is what God's chastening means as well. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. It means quite the opposite. It means that you are his child and he does love you. And that is why he is chastening you. Number two, understanding Psalm 60 helps us understand that man is actually powerless. And, I, and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel that way. It feels like Christians are always in the minority. And it's easy to be intimidated by the large platforms and the abundant resources that evil has around us in the world today. Their weapons seem to be so numerous. They seem to be so strong. How could we ever match or overcome those sort of things? But this is a, this is a prayer where we see that ultimately man is, is powerless. And though God may be giving some time and some space for those who are working their evil designs in the world, he will not always. And their evil designs will not triumph. They they will not succeed ultimately. And the other side of that is that that also helps us to see not to put our trust in man. We don't need to go put our trust in human resources and, and human understanding and all of those sort of things. So this is a this is a prayer that comes from a desperate place. I mean, it, as you begin to read it and you think about the occasion and how um, Judah had suffered so much from the invasion of the Edomites at the time. And it's almost, it's almost like David is astonished by this. How, how, almost like, how could this happen? And obviously you're not with our armies. So this prayer is, is, is desperate. And even when we are desperate in desperate straits and times, we can rest in the Lord who is almighty. There's 
none that can withstand the power of his right hand. There's none that, that can overcome the his will, his purpose, the plan that he has.